our title, you can tell it, it's different. There's a transition. We are no longer dealing with divisiveness. We are dealing with tolerance. Dealing with tolerance. And the title of our lesson is Paul's response to incompetent discipline. Paul's response to incompetent discipline. It was uh, many years ago, maybe a decade or so, that Kim got to pick the movie. That wasn't the last time, but most of the time she doesn't pick the movie. I, I do. And to be a good movie, what does it need? If you know me, okay, no, no, that's all right. Sports aren't bad. JD, no, no, not really. Definitely not Superman. No, you need a sword, okay? To be a great movie, there somehow has to be a sword involved. Well, this movie had no sword, and it was called uh, parental guidance. I'm not saying you should go watch this movie. I don't even remember most about it. I think uh, I know it's PG. Uh, but what was funny is, yeah, literally, um, a grandpa went to a, his grandson's baseball game. And you know, the old people, they like to watch young people play baseball and act like it was fun, more fun than it actually was. And so he's watching, and I believe his grandson's pitching. Strike one, umpire, strike one. Pitches again, strike two, strike two. Pitches again, strike three. What happens? You're out, right? No, no, he, he wasn't out. And so the grandpa was like, yeah, great job. You got him out. And they're like, no, no, he's not actually out. He's, he's still going to bat. And he's like, what? They're like, oh, no, in this league, we want everyone to feel successful. So they just kept going until they got a hit or something like that. And he was expecting the umpire to play by the normal rules of normal baseball. Three strikes, get out of here. But this was some sort of a wishy-washy type of system, and he had a really funny response to it. It didn't quite go as he was hoping with. Well, in the church at Corinth, there is an egregious sin being committed. And we would expect there to be discipline. We would expect third strike, you're out, buddy, and it isn't happening. So that's what Paul is dealing with in our passage for today. And just a, a little bit of a review. What is the theme of the book of 1 Corinthians? Excellent. Correction and condemnation. It begins with an introduction in the book, and he starts expressing what he's thankful for about the church at Corinth, and he doesn't have a lot. He essentially says, I thank God for what God has done for you. Because this church is struggling, but he does remind them that they are in Christ, even though they are wrestling with sin. Then we took a, a brief, a brief little walk through the topic of dealing with divisiveness. And it started all the way in chapter 1, verse 10, and it just ended at the end of chapter 4. And there are two main sections, the exhortation for unification and the role of God's wisdom in unification. And I hope now we're all ready to be united in one in Christ, laying aside our own selfishness, our own sin, our own preferences, 
and instead taking up the mind of Christ so that we can all be one, united for his kingdom. The section dealing with tolerance is just today. It's just one chapter, and then there's other things that he needs to move on to, but it is a powerful chapter. And when you first look at this, I had it titled Dealing with Immorality. But when you see what he's rebuking the church for, he understands that sinners are going to do sinful things, but he is most upset that the church doesn't do anything about it doesn't do anything about it. And so we see, first of all, that the bad news continues. All of that divisiveness. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. You know, I am of Peter. This, this worldly wisdom that they were using was bad news. And that bad news is going to keep on. It says in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. Now, we're, we're not sure. Paul had a lot of different interaction with this church, but it could have been this is the most recent report that he received that this news was happening. Obviously, someone is very concerned about this. They said, hey, the church is doing nothing. Go get Paul. Go tell Paul so he can intervene. And there is immorality. And we're familiar with the Greek word porneia. All right? And it could be anything from physical contact sexually, or it could be just the lustful mind. There is something so gross and disgusting amongst you, and it needs to be dealt with. And it's such a kind that it does not even exist among the Gentiles. Now, the church has Jews and Gentiles in it. But when he says it this way, he's saying the pagan heathens. Uh-uh, man. They wouldn't even do this. It's so gross. They wouldn't even do this. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, But immorality or impurity or any greed must not even be named among the saints, uh, among you as is proper among the saints. So we already now pause and we reflect in our own heart and our own life. What's on my phone? What's on my TV? What websites am I visiting? What do I talk about with the guys in the locker room or in the car or at work when no one else is around? What do I think of when I'm all by myself? As a Christian, all right, as a young man, that is a temptation that's going to continue on. And you have to fight that battle. Don't give in to it. Don't excuse it. You have to put off that sin and put on righteousness. The world loves sexual immorality, celebrates it, lives their whole life for it. We, on the other hand, should hate it. And that's what it has to be. We have to hate it because we don't want it to drag us down. We don't want it to warp our mind. We don't want it to destroy our relationships. We don't want it to taint our testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that it's so bad that someone has his father's wife. Now, there is an outside chance that it could be what it really is reading as, but the language and the description, most would take this as his father's stepmom, okay, his father's wife. It doesn't say that he has, he, he's sleeping with his mom, all right? It says his father's wife. 
And when it says this, all right, the book of Leviticus, I want you to flip there, okay? Let's go to Leviticus. The law, all of the regulations and the restrictions for the nation of Israel, God addressed all of this stuff. He addressed homosexuality. He, he addressed, you know, effeminacy. He addressed all of this gross stuff, incest. It says in chapter 18, verse 17, You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are blood relatives. It is lewdness. It's wickedness. You shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. Also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her menstrual impurity. You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled. You shall not give any of your offspring to Moloch. And on and on and on. You go back to uh, verse 11. Actually, verse 8. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. And on and on and on. And you're like, look, I just I feel like I need to go wash my hands and take a shower just by reading Leviticus 18. But God knew that Israel was going to be tempted in this way. And that's what the Gentiles would do. And he says, don't even tolerate it. Don't think about it. Don't let it happen. And here we are. In this church, and this is happening, all right? It's happening. Roman law would forbid this. Now, are the Romans the picture of morality? No, absolutely not. The Romans, part of the downfall of Rome was their, uh, you know, lustful passions and the degrading things they gave into, right? But even in Roman law, they were like, whoa, buddy. You can't do that. that. That's gross. But here we have a guy doing this throughout the week, showing up on church, sitting next to everybody, and singing out praises to Jesus. That's, that's not good. That's not good at all. Let's see how the bad news is corrected. And so verse 1 was the bad news. And he doesn't give this guy's name. He doesn't go into a lot of details. The rest of the time, he's saying, how do we fix this? What do we do here? First of all, we're going to ask ourselves, how has the church responded? How have they responded? You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. He goes on in verse 6 and says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Their pride, and aren't we supposed to celebrate pride to some degree? Their pride leads them to be tolerant. Does this sound familiar to anyone? that has heard a news story within the last like three years, their pride led them to be tolerant so that they were incompetent in the discipline they were supposed to be dispensing. When you take a time out and say, 
how does all of this connect? How does all of this happen? How, why does he chastise them for being arrogant? Why does he say that they are boasting? I'd like for you to flip to Revelation chapter 2. And we know the first part of Revelation, Jesus is bringing his message to the seven churches, rebuking them, correcting them, commending them if they're doing things correctly. Well, in chapter 2, there's a message to Thyatira. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, and look at how Jesus is described, who has eyes like a flame of fire. Well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize why is Jesus describing himself as having eyes as a flame of fire. He sees all, and what does fire do? It burns. It judges. He sees your thoughts. He sees your intentions. He sees your secret deeds. And he is judging them. And it says his feet are like burnished bronze. Which is another idea of trampling out wrath. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. So he actually is saying, I see you, I know you, and you're doing some good things. But why in the world are you tolerating this woman Jezebel? And we don't know if that's really her name. That would be really, really bad, because you know Jezebel was an incredibly wicked woman in the Old Testament. Most likely, that's just the phrase he's calling to refer her to it. She calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray. So first of all, women are not to exercise or lead over men. And this is what she's doing, and they're following after her. But what is it? To commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. You know what? They don't really mind her message because maybe there's some pleasure in this. Maybe there's some things that they're enjoying by this. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. There's judgment in this. This isn't what he's, he wants. He says, I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. So if you are an unbeliever, but you're playing the game and you're trying to look like everybody else, and yeah, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, Jesus knows that and he sees that. And this church, though, at Thyatira had a woman who was a false prophet. And she was leading people astray and they let her be. Why? Well, isn't, it, isn't it mean to correct isn't it mean to be judgmental? What are, what are they supposed to put her out of the church? Wouldn't that be harsh? I mean, Jesus loved, right? And he took everybody. No, no, no. Jesus is the one saying she's going down and so are her followers. Don't get love confused with tolerance. Don't let get grace and mercy mixed up with what is happening in our society today. But there is a connection be between this pride and tolerance. The tolerant one who tolerates sins, they think what of themselves? That they've like transcended above you. Like 
they've moved on to the next level of knowledge and enlightenment. And they treat you like that. Oh, you're just a Neanderthal who still reads that ancient document. I mean, come on, when it comes to homosexuality, it's just you do with your body and you do with your body. And, and we've gone past those, you know, archaic stereotypes and things like that. And yes, they do sound so ignorant, but it's pride that drives the train of tolerance. Pride that drives the train of tolerance. There are three specific ways I want to look at how pride is the issue here leading to this tolerance. This is a, a popular little meme that I found. It says, share our similarities, celebrate our differences. Now, in some regards, that's, that's fine. Look, I don't care if you're black or you're pink or you're white. I don't care if you're tall or fat or short. I mean, okay, I don't care if you speak the Spanish or you speak the French or whatever it is, okay? All right? Uh, those aren't things that make one person better than another person. You think of, you know, men and women. They both have a different role, but God loves them both. They're both incredibly important in his eyes. It's not that he values men more than he does women. So you kind of understand that. But that's not what this picture is about. This picture is about those things that make us like homosexuality, transgender, and so forth, um, you know, a, a loose relationship, sex before marriage, those types of things. Don't, don't like say no to that stuff. That's just a difference. That, that's just the way that guy was made. That's the way he was wired. So he's an alcoholic because that's just who he is. So instead of judging him for that, just accept him into the fold and celebrate those differences that are amongst you. If you don't believe me, that type of thought process bleeds into this. Tolerance means appreciating and respecting differences in people. And again, there's a part of this that, okay, but we really know what this is about, right? We really know what this is about. The transgender and homosexual portion of our country is a, a very small minority. But they are very loud. And they have done a very good job. They've come up with a game plan to make it to be where if you speak out against them, then you're the bigot. You're the wrong person. You're the wicked person. And look, all we're doing, I'm just calling sin a sin. All right? That, that's what I'm doing. But if I say something about it, look, if a kid dresses up as a cat or a dog and comes to school, I think that's weird. Because it is. But if I mention something or make them feel uncomfortable for their personal choices, I'm the bad guy? Look, Satan is not an idiot. He has a very deliberate plan, and now he's made it to where we call what is wicked good and what is good wicked. And it's only going to get worse, guys. It's only going to get worse. I don't know if you've ever seen the little uh, coexist thing on the back of people's all right, so here we have, uh, we have a little moon, which I think is Islam. Uh, then we have a, a hippie symbol. Um, I don't even know what this stuff is over here, but I think that's a male deal and a female thing or something like that. Then you have the Star of David. Okay, well, then you got some weird eye, which is probably like Scientology or some demon. I don't know what that is. You got the yin and yang. You got some Eastern culture type of stuff, and then you got your cross. Do these religions really coexist? I mean, have we not seen this week 
the hatred, the hatred that comes out of this. Look, there is one true God and there is one true way to him. And he is the giver of life. He is the creator of law. He is the creator of order. He is the giver of love. We know Jesus, so we know the love of God, so we can love others. All of the other false religions are a selfish, backbiting, backstabbing religion. Where they are trying to climb on the top of other people. There is no coexist in this. We don't tolerate false religion. Now, let's say that I have a friend and he's, he's Muslim. I can still love him. I can still care for him. But my main concern is that he would come to know Jesus Christ. And if I'm interacting with him and he's starting to rub off on me more than I'm rubbing off on him, well, that's a problem, right? We can live with people that think differently than us. We really can. I, I was telling, you know, we had our elders retreat. Um, in college, I came back to Southlake for the winter, and I worked. And the place that I worked was called the Marketplace, and it was in Southlake Town Square. And the Marketplace was run by a homosexual couple. So all of the guys there, the salesmen's, they were gay. And it did not take me long to figure that out. The other lady workers tried to warn me, and I'm like, what are you warning me for? Like, I have eyes, Okay. But I didn't quit that job because you know what I did? I shared the gospel with them. I called them out on the things that they made up about Christianity. But if you start getting pulled under and swayed, well, then you've got to run. But if you can live in light and not compromise your morals and your standards, then you can do that. But the world thinks that it's best that we just all, look, just ignore my sin and I'll ignore your sin, and we'll all kind of do our own thing. But there's always kind of breaking points for people because they say, like, you do what you do, and I do what I do. But then you're like, well, what about, like, child abuse? Well, that's clearly wrong. Well, how do you know that? Well, what about rape? Well, that's wrong. What about child pornography? And there's even laws trying to be pushed in certain states. We won't mention them in California. That it's trying to be more lenient on things like pedophilia. Trying to make it tolerant and acceptable. Where you got Florida that's saying, if you're a sex offender with a child, we're going to kill you. And California, literally, we're, and California saying, it's okay. It's just who you are. That is the war and the battle that we're fighting right now. And you're wondering, how can you help with this? Stand up for Christ. Don't give in to that lustful thought and watch that gross movie and talk about those disgusting things and save yourself for marriage as God has designed things. Treat women with purity and kindness as you should. But pride and tolerance work hand in hand. John Piper says, It's unpopular to take a strong stand on anything these days except tolerance. You have to be wishy-washy in a moment or you're going to get roasted. Even when the whole Israel-Palestine thing came out, certain people came out in support and then they had to backtrack and then they had to do this and they had to do that. Somehow you're supposed to play this middle ground. We call it spade a spade. Call it what it is and deal with the consequences. Well, the second way that pride and tolerance are connected is you just think of the Old Testament. What happened 
to the man that would have done this in the nation of Israel. He's sleeping with his father's wife. What would have happened to him? He would have been dead. Oh, that's so cruel. And, and da, 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 da. No, 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 no. That's good. Because you know what other people would not be tempted to do? What that guy did. Because if they find out, they'll kill you too. So it's a deterrent, but it also eradicates and purifies the nation. We always use the example of the disobedient child. The overly, overtly disobedient and rebellious child. What happened to them in Israel? They were supposed to be killed. And some of you are like, I wouldn't made it past five. And it wasn't like one time, hey son, take out the trash. No dad, I don't think I'm going to do that. Kill him! It's not, that's not what it was. But they would bring them out and they would kill them so that all the other children would say, I obey daddy. I obey. But you also get rid of the negative gross influence. But we let the influence stay and we tolerate it and it festers and it creeps and it teaches and it shows up on our kids' TV shows and movies and stuff like that. The Old Testament was very clear. But here we have a church ignoring the warnings and ignoring the teaching and saying, you know what? I know what God says. I'm just not going to do it. What is that? Pride. If you ever think differently than the Bible, you are what? Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Well, you even go to, to Jesus. Remember on the Sermon on the Mount, he clarified that adultery even extends to having a lustful thought towards another woman. Even having, even the thought, even the longing, you are guilty of adultery. And this guy was actually committing the act. So they know what Jesus had written. They know what Jesus had said. And they should have acted on this and gotten rid of this guy for his benefit, but also for the benefit of the church. Are you smarter than Jesus? The world thinks they are, and that's their, their pride. But he goes on to say this. You have become arrogant, and your boasting is not good. Verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Now, I don't know a lot about baking. I've done a little bit in my time. I'm sure you have never done it. Maybe you have. But apparently leaven is something that goes in bread. And this example would be unleavened bread. And then this example is leavened bread. So I'm thinking when you put leaven in, it makes the bread go poof. And it probably makes it taste yummy and delicious as opposed to this like flat cracker thing. But how much leaven does it take? Just a little bit. You start tolerating a little sin here. A little sin there. Have you ever done that in your own life? Like when you think of what you listen for music. Oh, that really wasn't that bad. I'm just going to let it keep going on my playlist. And the next one, well, and then it just kind of, it goes farther and farther. The next one, you're like, whoa, what is happening? My mother would blush if she heard this. And we do the same thing with, with what we talk about and movies and stuff like that. Instead of saying, look, I don't, don't want to go there. They understood this concept. This is a teaching that, that Jesus had in the New Testament, right? Go to Matthew 16. This wasn't a surprise. This wasn't something completely new. 
verse 6. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, he said that because we did not bring any bread. Which is hilarious when you think of it. Like the Pharisees and the Sadducees had this like wicked leaven. That they were just like, ha ha, your bread's tainted, got you. No, that's not what, he's, not what he's talking about. But Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss this among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 or how many large baskets you, full you picked up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? And you're like, thanks, Jesus. You didn't really tell us what it is. Well, verse 12, then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. If you start that, getting that legalism and those types of things mixed in, all right, we've had people, unfortunately, that go down the YouTube rabbit trail and start listening to different theologians and conspiracy theories and all this stuff, and it warps their mind and it just tears and takes them away. A little bit of bad teaching, a little bit of bad theology goes a long way. And so Jesus says, beware of it. Don't even let it near your bread. Don't even let it near your mind. This is a picture from the Civil War where they, they started to understand that if you got an infection in gangrene, then it would kill you. And so you had a choice, right? I got shot with a bullet. All right, maybe they got the bullet out, but I have an infection, and what are my choices here? You leave it, and I die, or you amputate. And they would amputate, and that would cut out the infection. That would cut out the gangrene, and they would be able to live. Well, there may be things in your life. You're not at the point of this dude, this, this sicko in 1 Corinthians 5. But there may be things in your life that are leading you down paths similar to that. What do you got to confess to your mom and dad? What do you got to throw away? What do you got to turn off? What do you got to ask for help for? Helpful things. Don't use your computer in your own room. If there's no software on it type of things. Do it in the living room where everybody else is. Don't do things late at night. Don't have a TV in your own room. Don't have a phone with unlimited access to stuff, okay? If you go to your dad and say, Dad, you know what? I'm really struggling. I need help. I don't know a dad alive that would be like, I'm so surprised. What's wrong with you? You say, I, I've been there too, bud. How can I help you? Let, let's do this. Get that help. Root those things out because otherwise it's going to taint and it's going to affect. When it comes to sexual immorality... It's not just that. It leads to lying, to being sneaky, to being deceptive, to being lazy. All sorts of things that it snowballs into. All right? So when the bad news corrected, how should the church have responded? Well, he tells them. It's not really complicated. Verse 2, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. So that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. This should have broke your heart. When you first heard, hey, this is what's going on in this guy's life. What? No way. That's terrible. Man, 
I hate that for him. I hate it for his family. I hate it for his friends. It should mourn. And when you hear of sin in the lives of your friends, it's not, oh, that's who they are. I'm better than them. It should, it should break your heart. But then you should have got rid of him. You don't let the leaven stay. He needs to be removed from your midst. How should the church respond now? Because in verse 2, you have become arrogant, have not mourned, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. But then he goes on and he gives his decision. He says, for I on my part, though absent body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this. <gasps> he judged him. But he doesn't know his parents and his upbringing and how he only had a three-legged dog and no food at home. And, you know, he doesn't understand the circumstances and the psychoanalysis. Man. No, he just read the situation. He's read the word of God. And he's going to make a decision. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you, are when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is church discipline. Send him out. Send him out with the hope that he will be ravaged and destroyed by the world and its systems, and he has nothing to do but come back to Jesus. It's like with the prodigal son, right? When the prodigal son who went away and all the loose living and all of that stuff, when he hit rock bottom, what did he do? He came back to his dad. He said, Dad, I'm so sorry. I never should have left you. And the dad was like, oh, I love you. Come on in. This man doesn't love Jesus. This man doesn't care for the church. So put him out. Break him so that that may be the thing that shows him his sin and his need of a Savior. And then he'll come running back. So that's Paul's decision. Well, what's Paul's desire in this? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's what he wants. Guys, tolerance hurts. If you just keep letting this guy sit next to you singing songs, showing up at your church potluck, he thinks he's a Christian. He's never going to change. you got to call him out so that he may be saved. Verse 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened, for Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. This is also a benefit to the church. I mean, imagine, this guys, what are the kids thinking? Well, that guy's doing it. Worked out for him. Why can't I do that? Hmm. He wants to purify the church, and he wants this man to be saved. Verse 8, therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's what it means to judge with the righteousness of Christ. It is sincerity and it is truth. I'm going to be honest with you. You're in sin. You're in the crosshairs of God's wrath. But if you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll receive forgiveness. He will rescue you. How is that unloving? But the world paints it that way because Satan wants to blind and he wants to distract. 
His desire is for this man's salvation and for the purification of the church. He wants restoration of the sinner and he wants purification of the church. He didn't look at this soldier and say, well, I think we might be able to save that arm. But you have a good chance of dying. He said, you know what? We got to lop him off. And you may not like it right now, but in the long run, you're going to be thankful that you did that. And we don't have time to go there, but you can jot down Matthew 18. And remember the process. If someone's in sin, you can go to them with the scripture, with a clear mind and conscience, and you can confront them with that sin. And if they repent, awesome, great, it worked. But if they don't repent, well, then you go with someone else. You can even, you know, tell the elders and bring an elder with you, and you can confront them. There are two witnesses here. We know this is going on in your life. Would you please repent? No, I'm not going to repent. Okay, well, then the elders will bring it before the church, and the elders will plead with the church, go to this man, go to this woman, ask him to repent, tell him you love him. And you're like, man, isn't that weird and hard and awkward? A lot of it, yeah. But it's helpful. It's beneficial. And if they repent, then you, man, open arms. Open arms. Guys, I'm telling you, as an elder, I have seen this process work for the glory of God over and over again. We think we're being mean. The world thinks we're being mean to that person. But a lot of times... That person comes back to Christ. That's huge. If they still don't repent, then you put them out of the church. That's the process. You are no longer considered a believer. You are no longer allowed to be a member here. You've put them out of the church. That's the process. And again, that's what God told us to do. Jesus told us to do this. And to ignore that is what? Pride. Pride for the sake of tolerance. So what's the direction here? He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. So Paul at one point had wrote them and they had taken this to heart and they had applied this in their own special way. But what did he not mean? He's not saying that you don't talk to the unbeliever. The, the, the guy who is a drunken slob that you work with, all right, the, the kid who's going out and partying on the weekend and sleeping around, he's not saying that you can't talk with that person. He's not saying you can't go to school with that person. He's not saying you can't have a job with that person. What he is saying is in verse 11. But I actually wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. The one who says, oh, I love Jesus. Let's go. Bible study. Yeah, this is great. Love Jesus. You love Jesus. But then they live however they want. He says, no, that's not, the, you cut that person off. You cut that person out of your life. Why? Because it makes them think that what they're doing is acceptable, but then they're tempting you with their leaven. Does that make some hard decisions in life? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Sometimes we think that we just got to have this little holy huddle. And all we ever do is hang out with Christians and talk with Christians and do things with Christians. There's a good part to that, right? But we're still here for a reason. These people are already going to heaven. These people aren't. So go share the gospel. Share your life with them. Share your life with them. Why Paul means what he means is in the last few verses. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those within the church? But those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Remove that man. The person that says that they're a Christian and that they love Jesus and they've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, but they live like a pagan, uh uh-uh. But the other people we go interact with, sometimes we think that we just hop in our car and we go to church and then we drive back home and then we shut our garage door so that all those wicked people don't get us. We're still here to be a what? A light. And to see the light, we have to go out into the darkness to do what we do, how we do. So as we conclude this, how are we going to wrap this up? I want you to know the process and purpose of church discipline. Know the process and the purpose of church discipline. We're not saying that uh, if we play like human pinball and you cheat, that James is going to come over and say, hey, look, this is step one, buddy. You are in sin. And if you don't, I'm going to go get Dale. And then there's two of us, and we're going to... This is, this is high-handed, hard-hearted, rebellious sin. Something like the sex, sexual immorality situation. Or uh, someone pursuing a divorce. Things along those lines. Know the process and the purpose of church discipline. Ephesians 5.11 says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, which is us, right, Christians, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. I look at my brothers and I don't look down on them in a condescending way. I empathize with them. I get it. I'm, I'm with you. But let's fight this together. Let's do this together. Let's handle this together. I want you to also understand the role of pride in tolerance. Know the process and purpose of church discipline, but understand the role of pride and tolerance. The tolerance movement is rooted and founded in pride. The world is shaking its fist at God, saying we're going to do what we want to do, and we're going to call it what we want to call it. Then lastly, do view the world how Paul did. View the world how Paul did. He looked at every unbeliever, not as a a wicked, terrible person, because they are. He looked at them as someone to win to Christ. Someone to win to Christ. That person, your coworker, that's cutting corners but getting promoted over you, win them to Christ. 
that person on your team that's goody two-shoes in front of all the parents, but living like a pagan on the other end, win them to Christ. Live your life in such a way that they see your good deeds and glorify your fathers in heaven. Open up your mouth, people. Confront sin and share the truth of the gospel. And I know when you first saw 1 Corinthians 5, you didn't necessarily know this is the direction that we're going, but this is the direction that Paul went. And as a church, we cannot, we cannot be pridefully tolerant. We must adhere to the truth of God's word. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, what a great time tonight to study your word together. I thank you so much for these men. I pray that they would love you in, their, in uh, your word. I pray that if there's areas of immorality in their own life, that they would confess that to you, that they would repent of that to you, that they would get help from their small group leader, from their friends, from their parents, that they would take steps to safeguard their heart and their mind, knowing that this is a, a lifelong battle. But through Christ, they can have victory. And we can glorify you, and we can present such a stark contrast to the grossness of this world. And by doing so, we can win others to Christ, living in this world for your glory and your kingdom. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.